Unlike many countries, the United States doesn't legally ban Muslim women from wearing the hijab or niqab veils that are worn to leave only their eyes exposed, but that hasn't prevented any number of incidents from happening in which attempts have been made by members of the public to pull them off, and that's just one of the acts of prejudices that the uh, the wearers often have to contend with. Falguni A. Sheth's latest book, Unruly Women, Race, Neoliberalism, and the Hijab looks into what it is about the sight of Muslim women in traditional hijabs that bothers so many. It's published by Oxford University Press and brings Falgani Seth, an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory University, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, to some people, a Muslim headscarf represents patriarchal oppression. To others, it can symbolize modesty, identity, and respect for a higher being. C- can it be both? Sure. Um, it can, depending upon what the circumstances are. Um, obviously, if it's a member of one's family or community or religious uh, environment, which is, you know, who is really pressuring someone to wear the veil, it's certainly possible to have that be a symbol of patriarchy and coercion. Um, but yes, I mean, absolutely. I think there's also a lot of autonomy concerning one's decision to wear the hijab or some other form. Well, perhaps we should define these terms. Although the word hijab has become a catch-all for all Islamic veils, particularly in the West, isn't it mainly used to mean a headscarf? It, yes. In fact, that is um, usually the term that is used to talk about uh, covering of the hair um, and then there are all sorts of other forms, such as the niqab, which you mentioned, which often, which covers. <clears throat> That's the, a veil. It's a veil. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that covers the woman's face with a slit left for the eyes. Well, a slit or, you know, I mean, it's basically it covers the nose and the mouth and allows the, the eyes to be visible. Yeah. So not sure I would characterize it as a slit, but certainly an opening. How different are they from the scarves we're wearing to protect ourselves from COVID? Well, I think that's an excellent question, Leonard. Um, In fact, I have been thinking about the same thing since we received various instructions to mask over the last two or three years, um, wondering how and why they're so different. Um, I would argue that in some ways, in terms of what they conceal, not at all, uh, but in other ways, You know, I think the messages that people read from COVID masks versus the niqab often can be very um, different and not necessarily because of the nature of the mask, but really because of the nature of the person who was wearing it. Um, We saw that a little bit in the in the early days when um, several African-American men attempted to walk through a Walmart in the Midwest and they wore a bandana in, um, you know, in compliance with the CDC's encouragement to mask and they found themselves ushered out at gunpoint and arrested. Um, and I think that has less to do with the bandana than with the fact that they were black men. And similarly, I think, you know, the same kind of mask upon somebody who is perceived to be darker or quote unquote foreign really has a very different repercussion. Has there uh, always been a problem or has the situation worsened as a result of the so-called war on terror and the aftermath of September 11th? Um, I don't know what the nature of the problem was prior to 9-11, but I certainly think that there has been a renewed attention to um, foreignness in a range of forms pertaining to 
folks who were perceived as Muslim, male and female. Well, there's and, a general anti-immigrant sentiment that's grown in some part of of our country over the years. Um, uh, uh, Donald Trump kind of cashed in on it when he ran for president the first time. Yeah, he certainly did cash in on it when he ran for president. Um, but I would argue that really that sentiment has kind of been there since 9-11. Um, it's really been kind of exacerbated. And in fact, in New York, in Queens, um, you may recall that there were two teenagers who didn't know each other, both of whom wore various forms of the, of the hijab, who found themselves arrested by the FBI and sequestered for weeks at a time without attorneys on the grounds that they were suspected to be terrorists. Um, and that happened, I believe, in 2004. And so, you know, since then, <laughs> I think we've seen many other incidents like that. So this kind of fear has been there well before uh, Trump came into office. Is it also a matter of fear of the other people who reject secular society? I suspect that's part of it. I think probably... You know, the reasons are fairly complex, but yes, that's one, certainly one source of it. Um, the idea, and I would argue fear, but also a form of arrogance that suggests that U.S. Uh, society is somehow objectively secular and is superior to other societies where religion is very much a part of the public space. So uh, we're seeing something similar when Hasidic Men and women are targeted, especially women? I think so, yeah. Hmm. I think it's a very similar phenomenon. But Catholic nuns don't seem to be affected. Well, isn't that interesting? Um, in part because I think they are considered kind of members of the faith, right? Um, extremely specific kind of representatives of the faith in a way that feels familiar. Um, familiar and longstanding and restricted to certain folks rather than, you know, having the habit um, extended to everybody who was Catholic. Well, hasn't the pressure to assimilate affected all immigrant groups? Of course, always. <laughs> <laughs> that is very much, I think, a part of many, many societies. I think there are very few societies where there isn't that pressure to assimilate. Felt both externally imposed and probably also in some ways taken on by members of an immigrating group. Isn't the situation worse for women who wear the hijab in other countries throughout the world, not just in South India, where there has been a long history of religious tensions, um, exacerbated a large, partly in recent years by Prime Minister Modi, but also in European countries like France and, and to my surprise, Austria? Yes. Well, France, Austria, Italy, um, many different countries in Europe. And that's actually the distinction that I wanted to make in my book that I think that kind of, I'm not sure I would call it better or worse, but I would certainly say it's a different form of hostility, a different form of discrimination where, at least in France, they, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, ban um, the veil from public institutions like, you know, government offices or schools, um, and also on the beaches, um, you know, like the burkini, which has kind of come into notice over the last few summers. Um, so yes, I think it's a very different kind of antagonism <clears throat> than we find in the United States, because there is this, I would suggest, you know, a kind of <clears throat> mythology 
or at least a narrative that we like about religious freedom that at least um, complicates the ability to ban religious uh, garb in public. Is Does this also happen in Great Britain, which, like France, has a colonial past? You know, it's interesting. I don't think it happens in the same way in the UK as it happens in France. And, I mean, I would argue that the French understanding of... Um, liberal liberalism is much more Republican in its, um, you know, in its instantiation. And so there is a sense that all citizens should be overtly secular in public. Um, of course, that's not always consistently observed, as we know, um, because, in fact, Catholic nuns are allowed to wear the habit without any kind of prohibition or harassment. Whereas in the US, the kind of liberalism that we are in the midst of, and I would argue possibly also in the UK, is one that is much more, if you will, laissez-faire in public spaces. Well, the United Uh, States has never had colonies in the Middle East or in Asia. No, and I think that's really an important difference. But what I want to suggest is that in the same way that the British had colonies in the Middle East and South Asia, even though the U.S. has not had colonies there, that kind of attitude has has permeated or crossed over the waters, if you will, such that even though we don't have that kind of explicit colonial background, we certainly have imported that kind of colonial attitude of, of liberal superiority. And I think that affects... Muslim women who uh, are, quote unquote, visibly um, Muslim in the United States. Well, we do have a a history of slavery in this country. How much have the racial dynamics involving black Muslims and, and Muslim women of color in the United States played a role in what we're discussing? Well, certainly in the courts, I think it really does play a role. And that's where a lot of my book um focuses the the conversation. I think for African-American Muslim women and Black immigrant Muslim women, I think they face both discriminatory treatment in the courts, but also a kind of treatment that's really different from the kind of treatment that other Muslim women of color face. Um, What about light-skinned Muslim women? Are they still, is there a form of racism there as well? You know, it's interesting. Um, They actually report being received much more favorably. Um, part of that might also be that many light-skinned women um, actually have actively chosen to convert and wear the hijab. Um, but I think part of that also has to do with the history of colonialism and slavery and our differential attitudes towards different, um, you know, different, if you will, racial and ethnic groups. And so lighter-skinned women are treated much more gently when they wear the, the hijab than our darker-skinned women. You list a number of interesting cases in this book. Um, I'm going to touch on some of them. In 2003, a Muslim female police officer was fired in Philadelphia for wearing the hijab. What was the reason given there? You know, um, I don't remember exactly all the details of that case at this moment, but um, but in part, uh, it was kind of arbitrary. She decided to wear it and sometime later she was informed that it was not, um, uh, in keeping with the kind of secular public look that 
the force wanted to enforce, and so she was fired. The department's uniform policy. Exactly. Well, we do expect police officers to dress like police officers. So would that be a form of discrimination? I mean, I'm not sure that wearing the kimar or the um, hijab would necessarily conflict with wearing a police officer's uniform. Police officers also often wear hats. And so it is possible to wear a police a you know, police uniform hat along with the hijab or the kimar. I would actually argue that if anything, um, we could make the case that wearing the hijab shows um, how open, perhaps even if it's just on the surface, a police um, a police department is, and that they are have are welcoming folks of different backgrounds and faiths to their uh, force. So I don't think that it's really at odds with that. In 2005, another case, two Muslim teens were arrested, strip-searched, detained, and interrogated for eight weeks. What were they suspected of? Well, this is the case that I mentioned earlier. Tashnuba, um, Adama Ba and Tashnuba Haider, who were from different parts of the world. One was Pakistani, I believe one was Somali. Um, they actually were <laughs> uh, taken away after some, it was, it was reported very ambiguously in the newspapers in New York, but apparently there was some quote secret signal that they had communicated, um, that led FBI to believe that they were, um, possible terrorists. And after a lot of research, I figured out that actually that so-called secret signal was just something as simple as, um, salam alaikum. And they were both walking uh, separately, but had crossed each other's paths at 26 Federal Plaza, which was the site of immigration and naturalization services. And they were both going for various appointments with the INS. And so they were, their houses were raided and they were um, taken away sometime later because uh, the FBI did not understand that this was not a secret signal. It was actually a greeting that they had exchanged with each other. They were finally released, but they were treated pretty egregiously for about six weeks. I'm speaking with Falgani A. Sheff. Her latest book, Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, published by Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Another case you cite involves both men and women. In 2007, the Transportation Security Association announced its intention to screen anyone who wore headgear. What was that all about? Well, that was a really interesting moment because I think this was an attempt at plausible deniability of religious discrimination. Um, and it was at the same time an attempt to kind of, you know, somehow search for alleged terrorists in the midst of airport lines. Uh, and so the TSA issued a ban on all so-called headgear. Um, and so in order to appear as if this was a religiously neutral ban, they banned cowboy hats and baseball hats. Um, Along with all- turbans and stuff. Exactly. On the grounds that these things could potentially um, conceal weapons. But as we know, or at least I would argue strongly that this was really directed towards those who wore turbans or 
um, the hijab or other forms of, of, you know, religious head coverings. Did all of those cases go to court? No. In fact, most they, in fact, most, most of them, none of them went to court. I mean, this was just a ban at the time, um, on these. And I believe that they changed it sometime later, but by and large, it's also a kind of cultural shift that is really hard to get rid of once it's in place. Despite Supreme Court rulings that have expanded religious rights, haven't the courts had a tendency to reject or minimize cases of religious discrimination in the workplace that have been filed by uh, Muslim hijabis? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I think the ones that come to our attention are the ones that the court, uh, you know, in fact, that, that the cases that go all the way up to the Supreme Court, and there are very few of those. The most notable one is um, one that happened in 20, well, it was decided in 2016, and it was called uh, Aber- uh, EEOC versus Abercrombie and Fitch. And this was a case that was filed on behalf of a young woman who was, I believe, Palestinian-American, and she interviewed at uh, an Abercrombie and Fitch in order to work as a sales clerk there. And she took a bunch of tests and passed with flying colors, looked like she could have been a perfect candidate to be one of their sales representatives. And at the end of the interview, she asked if her wearing the hijab was going to be a problem. And the person who was interviewing her said that she didn't think so, but that she would check. And indeed, headquarters later came down and uh, prohibited the hiring of Samantha Alauf precisely because she wore a hijab, even though she had offered to accommodate um, Abercrombie and Fitch by wearing one that conformed to their various dress codes. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission took up the case on her behalf, and the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the court ruled that Abercrombie and Fitch indeed did discriminate against her. But and this that was case, a previous court, right? Who knows what would have happened with the current court? Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. Um, although it is interesting, because this is this particular court apparently really is committed to different kinds of religious freedom. I'm not sure how flexible and open they are on that notion. But yes, it could have been a very different outcome. And in that, and that case was hailed across the country as being a mark that religious discrimination against Muslims was finally waning, that the court had sided on the correct side. And what I was struck by was the insistence that discrimination um, had been kind of prohibited by the courts. But what we don't see are the hundreds of cases that never get to the Supreme Court that are either dismissed before they ever get there or are settled out of court, in which case we don't really have a good sense of um, how they affect hijabis. What about uh, hijabis in most courtrooms? Are are they totally tolerated? (laughs) No, (laughs) not at all. Um, There's a really interesting case that happened in 2008 um, in Michigan. And this is, uh, a case that was, uh, involved a Muslim woman, woman who wore the niqab, uh, and she walked into a small claims court because she wanted to challenge 
the charges that a car rental company had um, made uh, because she thought that they were unfair. They were for damages to a car that she thought she shouldn't have to, um, you know, pay. And so she went in to recover her, you know, these charges unfairly. And the judge in the case, Paul Parrick, um, informed her that he would not be able to hear her case. Actually, he asked her to take her niqab off, although he called it the hijab in the court transcripts. And she, and, and, and as we pointed out earlier, often the two terms are uh, used interchangeably because people don't really understand what they are. Right. Okay, I'm sorry, I interrupted, but... Not at all. That was a helpful clarification. But it's also confusing in the transcript itself. <clears throat> and so he um, told her that she needed to remove her veil, and she politely refused. She said, I'm sorry, Judge, I can't. This is a symbol of my um, commitment to my faith. And he challenged her assertion. And he said, actually, I know that's not true. And you know how I know that's not true? I know because practicing Muslims have told me that what you're wearing is not an essential part of the faith, whereas um, the head covering is. And she demurred again. And she said, Judge, that's not the case. I'm I'm absolutely committed to my faith and I must wear this. I'm happy to take it off in front of a female judge. And he said to her, there is no female judge and I need you to take it off um, in order to verify whether or not you are telling the truth. What you are doing is just a cultural practice. It is not really a mark of your faith. And I thought this exchange was really strange because on the one hand, um, we as the ACLU filed uh, a letter of support because then Jinnah Muhammad took this case and sued um, Paul Parrick for discrimination. And the case went all the way up to the Michigan Superior Court. Um, the ACLU argued, filed a letter on her behalf and said, well, actually, um, there are plenty of judges who are visually disabled. They use the term blind. There are plenty of witnesses who are unable to appear in court, um, either because they're in witness protection or because they've delivered their testimony in a recorded form. This was the days before Zoom and COVID. And so it's not clear that having to see one's face is the only way to ascertain whether or not a witness is telling the truth. And at the time when I read the case and I was thinking about it, I was really puzzled. And I, I thought that this was a mark of our, you know, longstanding American co cultural commitment to transparency, that there was something about the notion of familiarity, that if you could read somebody's face, that somehow that gave us um, more comfort that somebody was or was not telling the truth. And, 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 and that's not true, because I, I have to tell you that, uh, uh, during the pandemic, I haven't been doing many shows with my guests in the studio with me, but I miss that. I miss that interaction, looking at somebody's face as they're telling me something, and so, and the signals that they send me sometimes about, oh, I, you know, oh, I don't want to go there, or oh, that's great, let's go, <laughs> you know, let's do a lot more on that one. They 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 tell you that with their facial expressions. 
They often do, but I think we're also kind of assuming that we have culturally uniform facial expressions. In fact, this is actually the subject of a lot of literature and criminology and sociology about what, how, for example, juries will determine that a defendant is guilty or not. Um, you know, based on whether they smile or whether they show remorse in a way that seems familiar or whether they're crying or whether they hold their head down. And in fact, one of the things that has been um, researched and found, you know, pretty much across these various studies is that uh, defendants who are darker, whose faces are darker and also often masculine in feature are judged much more harshly hmm. uh, because they don't reveal the same kind of signs that we think we're looking for that will tell us what they think. So I think, you know, you're right on the one hand that we, we do find a certain kind of comfort in the familiarity of reading somebody's face, but people's facial expressions are not necessarily, um, they don't necessarily communicate what we think they do. So I think there's a lot of leeway there. No. Um, yeah, go go ahead. So, just kind of getting back to the case, um, you know, the the court doubled down and and they basically this was um, you know, a challenge to the Michigan rules of evidence um that, you know, gave guidance about how judges could operate their courtrooms. And they came back and said, "Guess what?" the judges will have full autonomy over every aspect of their courtroom, including what and how witnesses behave and what they wear. And I thought, this is an incredibly hmm. harsh response to this particular case. And I couldn't figure it out, but I ended up writing a whole article about liberalism and transparency based on this case and how, how much we value that kind of sense of transparency. And then... As I was moving towards the end of the book, I came across another very strange case. And again, this one, it took me a long time to kind of unravel, but it ended up, it turns out it was about an international house of pancakes in Oxford, Mississippi. And um, it involved a woman who wore the hijab, who was a weight person in the IHOP. And she had suffered a lot of racial animus from her colleagues, racial epithets, the N-word. She was African-American. Um, a lot of, you know, uh, just hostility of just extreme proportions. And so she ended up filing a case of religious discrimination um, because she was let go sometime later. And the judge in the case was really interesting um, and not necessarily in a good way, but at least a puzzling way. And this was Judge Karen Bowder. And she said, well, she said, it is certainly the case that you um, have had to face a bunch of racial epithets, but you were not fired based on racial discrimination. And so if you had wanted to file on that grounds, you should have filed on that ground and not on the grounds of racial discrimination, even though a lot of the witness testimony pointed to animus to her uh, hijab and urged her to study the Bible, but there was a lot of other racial animus as well. And I just thought this is really interesting. And the judge also said, oh, and by the way, the deadline is passed, so you can't file on those grounds anyway, and I'm dismissing it. 
Isn't there a song by Bob Dylan that, that claims that Oxford is the worst town in America? <laughs> I don't know. My my pop culture is uh, not that good, but I believe you if you tell me it is. <laughs> Although I will tell you, you know, what's fascinating about Oxford today is that there's a huge ethnic culinary hotbed there, like just amazing restaurants from all kinds of immigrant groups. Better than IHOP, obviously. Yeah, seriously. Um, <laughs> Which isn't so, too difficult. <laughs> when I read this, I just thought, God, this is so strange. I mean... You know, over 30 years after Kimberly Crenshaw wrote about intersectionality and the way that we need to think about all of these different vectors of legal oppression together, class, race, et cetera, that this judge had no, absolutely no interest or no clue about it. But the other thing that really struck me was some kind of familiar tone that I, that I, I recall sensing when I read the case of uh, Jinnah Muhammad and Paul Perrick in Michigan. And so I went back to that case. And what I realized after a lot of work, because I just, there was no mention of Jinnah Muhammad's racial background. And so, because, you know, the courts fancy themselves to be racially neutral, unless they're talking about race explicitly. Although the name does give us a clue. Well, I thought that maybe Jinnah Muhammad was Palestinian or Syrian or Lebanese. After all, Michigan mm-hmm. um, or Palestinian. I mean, from you know, we see this from Representative Rashida Tlaib, right? There's a, a large uh, Muslim population of various ethnic immigrant backgrounds, and then I realized that Jinnah Muhammad was black, and suddenly a lot of things started falling into place that actually. Judge Parrick's challenge to Jinnah Muhammad that what she that what she was doing by wearing the niqab was cultural suddenly started to make sense. That I think these both um, DeAndre Spears and Jinnah Muhammad uh, faced a special kind of scrutiny because they were Black Muslim women, and in the United States, that's considered even more controversial, I would argue, or controversial in a very different way, because it's thought that African-American women um, should, in fact, should be Christian when, and that this feels like it's a kind of challenge to Christianity, to, to be Muslim. And in fact, what we know from the Nation of Islam and other um, Islam, American Islamic movements is that often these <clears throat> movements emerge in response to challenging Christianity as the religion that supported and accommodated slaveholders in their quest to manage slaves. And so I think that is a kind of unconscious or at least unspoken history that uh, bubbles up in these interactions in the courtroom that we can't really put our fingers on because we have all kinds of techniques to at least give us the impression that courts are neutral. Well, after uh, we talked about this yesterday, after an event involving Malcolm X, uh, the uh, New York City Police Department infiltrated the Nation of Islam to uh, <laughs> to find out if uh, there were any illegal things going on. You can't imagine them doing something similar to other religious groups. Exactly. Well, exactly. And I mean, Muslims have really faced that, especially in New York City and all over the country. But because I spent a lot of my um, 
time as an academic near New York for a very long time. I, I especially had a focus on that. And, you know, the FBI and Lord knows the NYPD, as a number of my colleagues have also written about, have spent a lot of time, right, infiltrating mosques in New York or trying to turn uh, mosque attendees into informants for the FBI. Um, and so, yes, they've really had an intense scrutiny, both among kind of groups who are Muslim, uh, Muslims of other ethnicities, but also for black Muslims. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Sisters with hijab on, you'll always be a queen. Don't let them take your freedom or destroy your dream. They say that you're a press girl, but you are truly free. She wears it out of love now, so please just let her be. Sisters with hijab on, you'll always be a queen. Don't let them take your freedom. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Falconer Yesheth. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Unruly Women, Race, Neoliberalism, and the Hijab. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give, and then the number two, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Professor Sheth, who... Uh, whose book is published by Oxford University Press. She's an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies. Uh, she is has published articles on race, hybrid identities, culturally sanctioned violence against immigrants and populations of color, and on the methods by which the state legally establishes the persecution of Muslim women and other women of color, and published several books uh, including toward a political philosophy of race. Um, but we are discussing her latest, Unruly Women. Uh, I was wondering, uh, we've been talking mostly about the situation in this country following 9-11. Um, what is the, the history of this country? Because um, Muslim women started coming to this country uh, at the end of the 19th century, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think they did, but I do think that this particular, the phenomenon of discriminating against women who wear the veil is very much a colonial phenomenon. You mm -hmm. said this a little while a earlier. post-colonial phenomenon. Well, but also a colonial phenomenon. I mean, it happened mm -hmm. um, in, uh, you know, a little bit in Egypt, but also, as we know, in India, there was a lot of attempts to regulate women who wore various kinds of coverings. But um, but I would argue that, and, you know, that actually this is a kind of attitude about women of color more generally. And that's, I guess that's what I mean when I say that it's colonial. I mean, Franz Fanon um, talks about the ways in which um, the politics of a society plays out through the clothing of its inhabitants. And he goes on in Algeria Unveiled um, 
to talk about how Algerian women were both deployed strategically to fool the French by um, by carrying weapons or by unveiling altogether to appear as if they were secular French women. Um, you know, and he, he talks at length about the ways in which they were judged by the French colonial administration. So, you know, that attitude, I would argue, has actually, it, it, has different kinds of prongs. And so we saw it in the encounter and ultimately the liberation of Algeria. But we also see it in other countries. And so in India, not so much about the veil, but at least with regard to the sari, um, there was very much a kind of British adapt, forcible, if you will, or gently coercive adaptation of um, how women wore the veil in the 18th and the 19th centuries. I mean, so, when, when these countries were British colonies. Exactly. And so along with British colonial administrators, we also had British missionaries who arrived in India and they were rather shocked. I talk about this in one of the chapters of my book, but they were really shocked to see women wearing the sari with their breasts exposed. And so they urged these women to cover their breasts and they were the ones who actually came up with um, the waistcoat, uh, which, you know, we see a modified version of it today as the blouse to get Indian women in the South, especially in Madras to, to cover their breasts, women of a certain caste. And, um, you know, because they were absolutely convinced that this, these women didn't know enough to, to have modesty or shame and what ended up happening was that a number of priests found their covering up to be disrespectful. So it was an interesting, so they got very upset. And it was a very interesting kind of confluence of factors ranging from patriarchy to uh, religious commitments on both sides that ended up playing out on the bodies of these women uh, who were wearing the sari. And I think that actually is one of the bigger lessons that I learned from writing this book is that the politics of a society often play out on the body and the clothing habits of women, but at the very least on the bodies of women. And Lord knows the last six months, we've seen plenty of evidence of that. And you're saying that they can be contradictory because we are, we think of all of this as uh, forcing Muslim women to aspire to the prevailing norms of, uh, of uh, the, the society they lived in, uh, which is, uh, uh, th that's what the liberal idea is. But then if they're bare-breasted, then suddenly <laughs> they're, uh, they're doing the opposite. Yeah, because we have certain um, ideas of what modesty, sh what proper forms of modesty should look like. Our idea of what pro proper modesty is, but not necessarily their idea of what proper modesty should be. And similarly, I would say, you know, this is also what really faces Muslim women in the United States is a certain sense of what the liberated woman should look like, but what our the autonomous woman should look like. Aren't Muslim women often thought of as being culturally backward or religiously oppressed, even by liberals who, who claim to be opposed to all forms of prejudice? Yes, it's a really good question, Leonard. I mean, I think that's exactly um, the theme that runs through my book is to 
suggest that that as folks who live in liberal democracies, we have a certain kind of superior attitude about what autonomous people look like, what free people look like, because liberalism has long been a kind of ideology or a, a framework that um, obsesses with maximizing freedom for people. And I think that our vision of what freedom looks like is often uncritical. And so, yeah, we that ends up being used to really coerce and constrain folks who don't appear in public the way that we sh- we think they should. And so we mistake that for being unfree or backward or uneducated. And so what I'm asking um, for people in this book and for readers, but all of us really, is to say, you know, what is it? Maybe we need to turn the lens on ourselves and say, what is it that allows us to think that we're right in this particular kind of um, impression that freedom has to come in a certain form, that it has to look like a certain kind of woman that somehow, you know, looking like, um, God, I don't even know these days, right? Uh, Ariana Grande or, you know, Goldie Hawn, if you're a little bit older, is a sign of liberation, whereas looking like Ilhan Omar or Linda Sarsour is somehow not. Well, you write about dismissal. I'll get to Ilhan Omar in just a moment. <laughs> you write about dismissal. What do you mean by that? the use of that word? Um, yeah, that's thanks for asking that question. That really is a term. So I'm a philosopher by mm-hmm. education, and so I had to get a little philosophical in here at, at uh, various points. But I was really struck by the way that, at least in courtrooms, because I'm looking at a lot of cases, about the ways in which dismissal is a legal technical term to dismiss a case or, you know, to dismiss somebody is often considered to be just a kind of matter of procedure. But I think dismissals actually got a much larger resonance in everyday culture and in our interactions with people from backgrounds that we don't understand or that we think that we disapprove of, that there is a sense that, they somehow are doing something that is contemptible or is not worth our time. And so there's a kind of existential and I would argue political dismissal that occurs there, which um, pretty much just kind of, it doesn't attempt to engage folks who are doing something that raises our curiosity, but rather just takes them out of the picture altogether. My guest on today's London Low Paid at Large is Falguni A. Sheth, S-H-E-T-H. Her latest book, Unruly Women, Race, Neoliberalism, and the Hijab, published by Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We talked about women uh, in courtrooms. What about when these Muslim, Muslim women wind up in prison? Uh, are they forced to wear prison uniforms? Can they wear can they wear the hijab? Um, I haven't really seen many instances of systematic removal of the hijab, but I don't doubt that they're there. What I've seen more often than not <clears throat> is that women who are trying to visit. Uh, relatives in prison have to pass through security 
which often requires them to take off their hijabs. And so this has been, you know, something that's come up in the cases that I've seen uh, as, you know, something that women are challenging. Why is it that you need me to take this off? This is an article of faith. It is not um, a source of combativeness or, you know, um, secretive hiding of weapons or something like that. You've talked about seeing even prominent women targeted, like Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. Aren't you encouraged that she was elected to public office in the first place? I absolutely am. Um, I'm encouraged by all of the Muslim women who veil in public in this country. But we also know that she faces some much harsher scrutiny (laughs) precisely for the reasons that we've been talking about, because she wears the hijab, because she is black, because she is outspoken, um, and because she does not apologize for any of these. Or, and because she's a liberal. Yeah. Um, Should we assume say, that that somebody like her would be a liberal? Well, I think we're using liberal in a slightly different sense here. Politically liberal, I mean, on the left. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's exactly right. Of course. Why not? And this is actually, you know, I think one of the things that we can disentangle that just because one is committed to one's faith doesn't preclude them from being politically liberal, that you can be um, on the left and you can be quite progressive and you can have generous values um, and still have a faith that you're committed to, or at least that you want to show your commitment to in this form. Well, we can't imagine uh, <laughs> Ilan Omar being elected as a, a representative from the Republican Party. Um, so um, how much of, of all of this is political? Well, about Ilhan Omar or in well, general? I mean, in general, of, do we see a political divide as well in the discussion of of? Uh, race, neocolonialism, and the hijab? I mean, I think we may see much more of that divide today. Um, And in a way, I think that's possibly good news because it suggests that there is increasing acceptance of women who wear the hijab, much more so than there was five years ago or even 10 years ago and certainly more so than 20 years ago. But I would argue that that has been a very gradual acceptance and that folks who were otherwise liberal (laughs) in, you know, in all the ways that we like were also the same ones to be critical or to, you know, to suggest that women who wore the veil were not, Hmm. in fact, autonomous or in their right minds. They were culturally backward and religiously oppressed. Yeah. So... So I think the attitude is changing, at least in certain uh, sectors. But I would argue that at least in courtrooms, we're not seeing that to the same degree. You express some hope for change in today's younger generation of women. What are you seeing there? I'm seeing much more openness among, you know, my um, college students. Uh, many I live now in Georgia after 30 years of living in New England and New York City. And it's really interesting just what an enormous Muslim population there is, both... Really? There's uh, a Muslim population in Georgia? Large. 
Yes. What brought uh, them there? All kinds of different things. I mean, you're, what brought them there? What, what part of what I was going to say is that there's a very large African American Muslim population mm. in Georgia. Okay, it's significant. And in fact, I was reading about them before I ever moved to Georgia. Um, but in newspapers where they were being charged with contempt of court or being arrested because they were trying to move through courtrooms without taking off their hijab. This was back in 2007, 2008. And I couldn't understand these cases. And when I moved here, I suddenly, you know, and finished this book, I started to realize what was going on, which is that you have a large black African-American Muslim population, but you also have um, a large a uh, Somali population, a large Sudanese population. There is a significant Afghan population, um, Iranian population, um, Pakistani population. So, and many, you know, Indian Muslims as well who have fled India in the last 15 years. And so, I mean, it's, it's pretty significant, but their children are coming up through Emory's classrooms and other universities and they're out in full force and they, you know, they're, they're, they're the local, you know, student populations as well, the non-Muslim populations, they're just much more generous and open and casual um, when they encounter each other. And so, yes, I do have a lot of faith hmm. that the next generation will do the work that needs to be done to talk to each other and to and to understand um, that that fear is not the proper response to encountering what's unfamiliar, we but have, rather conversation and interaction is. We have just about a minute and a half left, but uh, since you are teaching at a major university, are uh, issues like the integration of the philosophy of race, critical race theory, post-colonial feminist theory, uh, political philosophy to expand the scope of feminist theory to include feminist security studies of race. Are they being addressed at, at your school? Well, I mean, to the extent that I'm working on them, sure. Um, you know, but I think, yes, abs- I don't think that it's widespread, but I certainly think that critical race theory is something that Emory has, um, protected and values that I think philosophy of race is something that it also values. Um, and, you know, my hope is that some of these other areas as well will interest students. I mean, in a way to talk about security studies feels kind of old hat 20 years after 9-11, but I think it's really at play in an issue more than ever now. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a fascinating conversation. Falgoni A. Sheth, her book, Unruly Women, Race, Neoliberalism, and the Hijab, published by Oxford University Press. She's an associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Emory uh, and the author of uh, many articles and some books, as other books as well. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks so much, Leonard. I really enjoyed being there. I appreciate the conversation. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopate at Large, and to this week's audio engineers, Reggie Johnson and Paul DiRienzo, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. 
If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, everywhere else you can get your podcasts, and you can check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. I guarantee you, you're not going to hear it an hour on the topic that we discussed today, even though it's an important part of what's going on in America. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Unruly Women, Race, Neoliberalism, and the Hijab by Falgany A. Sheth. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, you can do that by uh, pledging 10, 15, 20, 25, well, however many much you wish on a monthly basis until you decide that uh, you want to end that. And we will say thank you because it helps us to plan for the future with a number of perks, including a WBAI tote bag, if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Uh, we're off on Monday, but I hope you can join us on Tuesday when our guest will be Jerome Sharon discussing his latest book, Big Red. We'll see you then and hope that you have a great weekend.